Well, praise the Lord. Thank you so much, choir. Wonderful song. About the only thing that tops that is listen to Miranda's two little boys sing that song behind me. And, and to know the words, and read them and sing that. Well, that's awesome, isn't it? Acts chapter 7. Our reading will be verses 54 down through verse 60. Obviously, with David's song selections that we seek to wed with the preaching of the Word, you know where we are. Even if you haven't visited, you should know where we are. If you haven't been here the last few weeks. But we've been preaching perhaps one of the greatest sermons ever delivered, Stephen's sermon. And he wasn't an apostle. He was a deacon. Imagine that. And he's preaching faithfully the Word of God. Beginning in verse 54, let's give attention to the Scripture. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged. They ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped up their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Suffering will sometimes be inevitable as we determine to follow Jesus Christ in the work that he, that he desires for us to do. But the good news is, the king's mission is unstoppable. Amen. And that's relatively uh, clear what we learned out of Acts 1-8, that God has a mission for his people to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, and God has the goods to get it done, right? He's going to get that accomplished. And here is a servant of the Lord, Stephen, who obeys the Lord even unto death. Jesus is building his church. Takes me off the hook, doesn't it? Jesus said, I will build my church. Amen. Gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And what we learn from the Bible is neither rocks nor bullets can ever stop and prevail against the Lord's church. And as we look into this text, may God give us the grace to follow Jesus faithfully until we, like Stephen, all fall asleep. But in that moment, we'll see the glorified Savior and we'll know that living for Jesus was definitely worth the sacrifice. And that's what we learn here from the Word. You can't help but see the relationship between the death of Jesus and the death of Stephen. They're not totally similar in execution style, but they are definitely laced with similarities. The Sanhedrin has heard the story of redemption. Stephen knew the Old Testament better than the Sanhedrin knew it. And he's preaching to them the Old Testament. He does it accurately, systematically. Piece by piece, he teaches them that from Abraham down through Moses to David. And of course, the culmination of all of salvation history is the Lord Jesus Christ. 
they thought they had the glory because they had sacred space. They had the temple. They had the temple. Glory, hallelujah, you had the temple. But they missed the manifest presence of the glory of God, that God dwelt in a tabernacle. God was with Abraham in Mesopotamia, a pagan land. God was with Joseph down in Egypt, a very pagan land to the Israelites. God was with David. Even when he asked to build the temple, he said, you're not going to build it, but Solomon will. God was with them. And the people of Israel had missed the ultimate bestowing of the glory of God. They missed the Lord Jesus Christ. And they crucified their covenant God. And so he's preached that to them. And he reminds them that they are covenant-breaking, Christ-rejecting, law-despising rebels. That doesn't go over too good with our kind of preaching today, does it? That most people want to hear. Uh, we don't want to hear that kind of straightforward preaching, but that's what he says to them. Again, Romans 10.4 reminds us that the goal of the law is Jesus Christ. So if you don't trust Christ, you haven't obeyed the law. Jesus Christ fulfilled the law. So just stick that, uh, put that as a sticky note in the thinking part of your brain. Romans 10.4. Romans 10.4. We have to get that into our minds. Why? Because there's no salvation apart from Jesus. There's no keeping of the law. So the Israelites were the very ones who demeaned the law, missed the law, and not Stephen. So the ESV says that they were enraged at what they heard. Do y'all note that word? It means to be cut to the quick. It's used in another time in Scripture, Acts 5.33, same word. They were enraged at Stephen. Or they were enraged at Peter, but you had somebody named Gamaliel. Remember that Gamaliel principle? He stands up and says, well, folks, let's look at this in a different way. If it's of God, it's going to work out. And we, we fleshed out the Gamaliel uh, principle. But in this text, no one stands up with any wisdom at this point. So they're enraged at him. Remember that the word cut means to be sawn in two. So they were cut. But do you remember... Another time in Acts 2 when it says they were cut to the heart? Well, in that sense, they were convicted by the Word, trusted in the Messiah. In this sense, they're enraged, indignant, ticked off, mad. Uh, incredibly strong word. They're enraged so much that they want to kill the mailman. They want to kill the messenger because of what has been preached to them. Their reaction. Again, in 754, it's the same reaction in Acts 5, but it's just different because there's no Gamaliel there, there's no restraint, there's mob violence. And please note the contrast. On the day of Pentecost, the listeners hear the word, obey it. They realize that they themselves put Jesus to death because Peter tells them that. And they say, what, what, what must we do? And the Bible says they trust Christ and they are baptized and added to the church. But the response here is totally different. Stephen has expounded the Old Testament Scriptures flawlessly. And here they respond with infuriation at the word being preached, with anger and malice. This leads them to the murderous intention of the heart. Luke tells us that they ground their teeth, which is the equivalent we would say today that they're grinding their teeth. Have you ever been so mad when you spoke to someone that you said, ah, and you grind your teeth? Yeah, you have. Yeah, we are, we're all guilty of that. Yep. And so, it's a sign of violent rage. They grind their teeth against the messenger. And in reality, they're not rejecting Stephen, but they're rejecting the Christ in Stephen. 
Did Jesus not say that? Clearly, he reminds us of that. Do you remember the description of Stephen's character? Uh, we learned that. Not only is he the, one of the only ones that, give, that you get some commentary about when the deacons are chosen, the, the writer goes on, Luke goes on to explain more about Stephen's character. He was full of the Holy Spirit. He walked with Christ. He had incredible character. And in verse 55, God enables him to see what he sees. God opens up the eyes of the prophet so that he can see. The verse says that he's gazing intently at the glory of God. Have we ever seen the word to gaze intently? You have. Acts 1.10. They were gazing intently as Jesus ascended into heaven to the right hand of the Father. Same word here. They're gazing intently. It's an intense stare. It's like us standing out on the church lawn and watching one of the balloons go out of sight. You can still see it. Still see it. Still see it. Intently. It's like those new things, firework things that you, you put the light in that things go, goes way up in the air. You can see that thing for, forever. They're intently locked in to this particular episode. Do you remember how Stephen's sermon started? He said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of, come on folks, track with me. The God of glory appeared. You translate the Bible with the Bible, right? So that's how he starts his sermon. And this ends up being a, an inclusio. It's, 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 it's parentheses and bracketed off from the beginning to the end. And in the end, he tells them that the God of glory came down. And he's ending his sermon by saying, I see the glory of God. Isn't that awesome? It is. The Word of God is awesome. At the end of his life, he sees the heavens open in the glory of God, it would be impossible for us to imagine or guess what he saw. Can you imagine? Glory is the manifest presence of God. It is the brightness of his majesty. It's the splendor of his character. So Stephen is a man full of the Holy Spirit of God, and he sees God in a way that is absolutely captivating, intently gazing at the glory of God. He also sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now, what is the implication of Jesus being at the right hand of God? Now, remember, who is he speaking to? He's speaking to the who's who in all of Israel. They're the power brokers of the day. They're the most powerful people on the face of the earth at that particular time, especially over their own people. So they know what's going on. They know what it means to be at the right hand of God. They know what that means, powerfully speaking, they know that the right hand means that the person seated there is equal to the person on the throne. They know that as, they're as Stephen is preaching. So it is the ultimate place, according to the word, of kingly rule and priestly intercession. That's what it means to be at the right hand. So in verse 20, 56, Stephen calls on the Sanhedrin to look. Isn't that incredible? As they're gnashing their teeth and they're getting ticked and more upset at him he's beholding the glory of God and he invites them to look it's a word charged with emotional appeal it would be like me saying to you folks don't you see it don't you see it in the word can't you grasp it P please consider it this open your eyes to see what I am seeing is what Stephen is saying what an incredible Seen. He's preached one of the greatest sermons that's ever been preached. Everybody around him is grinding their teeth and they're desiring to kill him. Yet here is Stephen, totally enraptured with a vision 
of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ at the Father's right hand in all of His glory. What a scene we have. Incidentally, where is Stephen at this time? Most scholars believe he's still inside. He's still inside, going through the trial. He hasn't been run out of town on a rail yet as he's being stoned. But in likelihood, all likelihood, he's inside on trial with the Sanhedrin. And God gives Stephen this incredible glimpse or sight of really what's going on in reality. You ever thought about what if we could see what's going on in the heavens at this moment? The reality of what's going on in heaven and God in all His glory. God gives the ability for him to see the unseen. Hebrews chapter 11. It's so clear for Stephen, such a reality that he calls upon his condemners and his accusers to look with him. So, of course, they can't see anything. Why? Because they're blind. The natural man cannot discern the things of God. So the next statement is, what does he, the next statement is what he does to him in that reference. He sees the Son of Man. He gives him not only the glory picture, but he sees the Son of Man. Now this is the only time that Jesus is referred to as the Son of Man outside of the Gospels. And it's the only time someone else calls Jesus the Son of Man other than himself. So if you've got uh, observation ears and eyes to look at the Word, you're going to immediately say, wow, he uses a term, Son of Man, that only Jesus used exclusively for himself. Why did he do this? Why does he use Son of Man terminology? Well, first, consider some of the Son of Man sayings in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus said everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. Boom! You think the Sanhedrin remembered that statement from Jesus? A lot of those Pharisees and Sadducees were standing around. As a matter of fact, most of these quotes were given directly to them. You'll see the Son of Man, and He is going to fulfill every bit of what He said He was going to do. He also said, For He will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and I will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon and flogged, and then they will kill me. Jesus said that. The Son of Man is a title associated with suffering and death. So that's why, first, Luke uses that terminology and or Stephen as he preached was because it, it brings forth the issue of suffering. Not only suffering that Christ did on our behalf, but suffering that Stephen is doing for the cause of Christ. But it also speaks of vindication. Huge connection here. Jesus stood in heaven to give his testimony for Stephen just like he promised. I will vindicate my servant. Servant. What did Jesus say? Whoever acknowledges me before me and the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. <clears throat> Boy, isn't that good stuff? Luke 12, verse 8. So the Son of Man is titled with, a, with an association of suffering of Christ, but not only his suffering, but the vindication. I think he was somewhat vindicated the third day when the stone was rolled away, don't y'all? Right. right? Vindication. So the Son of Man is also, thirdly, a messianic title. You don't have to turn, but listen to Daniel chapter 7. First time it's ever used in the Bible. Chapter 7, verse 13. By the way, I want to preach through Daniel one day, so when we get to chapter 7, get ready. A lot of preachers will preach 1 through 6. They won't preach 7 through 12. Well, I will. We got to, right? Seven thirteen. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Bang, there it is, first time. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. 
Could this be something called the ascension? Back to the Father, maybe? Verse 14. And to Him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve Him. Folks, that's going to happen. God's got the goods to get it done. Right? He's given the promise it's going to happen. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. So that messianic title. And so Jesus also said, but from now on the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. He also said, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great glory. Have I told you lately that Christ is coming back? Right? He is. Do you think these men remember the statements? Do you think that they remembered that Jesus called himself the Son of Man? And I would say to you, yes, they knew that's exactly what was going on. It's pregnant with meaning. And then the text says he saw Jesus standing. Does that strike anybody? He's seated in power, but now he's standing. Peter has already told us that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. And when it comes to him standing, some scholars wrongly say that there's no difference between standing and sitting. Well, I totally disagree. I, I totally disagree. I think there is a profound difference. So Stephen first sees Jesus seated as a priestly intercessor. But the second time he sees him standing, he's his advocate and he's his defender. He's risen from his place to stand as defense to the witness. And he's welcoming him into glory. Remember how it started? The God of glory came down. Right? And now he's witnessing firsthand. R.C. Sproul nails it. He says, In modern trials, only two people stand in the courtroom. The prosecutor and the defense attorney. The presiding judge sits on the bench and he remains seated throughout the trial. Here in Acts, Sproul says, Stephen was on trial for his life because the highest earthly court, Israel, had him on trial. But Stephen looks up and sees Jesus standing, not sitting, at the right hand of God, his customary place. Imagine for a moment that you are on trial for your life. You've come to the courtroom, made your plea of innocence, and sat down. And then comes the prosecutor's opening statement. He charges you with a heinous crime. And when he's finished with a statement, he asks the defense attorney to give his opening statement. But as the prosecutor looks around, there's no defense counsel present. I wouldn't feel good about that situation, would you? Right? Quite frightened you would be at that moment. But then just imagine that the judge leaves the bench, comes down to the floor, and he says, I am the counsel for the defense. What an awesome scenario, having the judge as your defense attorney. That's what Stephen saw. And the Bible says that Jesus Christ is your advocate before the Father. You have no chance of heaven without Jesus being your advocate. But boy, howdy, folks, you're, you're bound for glory if Jesus stands in your defense. Well, he did that, did he not? He took your sin upon himself, bore it in his body so that he could give you his righteousness so that you could be in heaven. What an awesome thing to have the judge. Look, folks, if you don't have the judge as your advocate, you're going to have the judge as a judge. And the Bible says that you will die in your sin and you will be placed in eternal separation from God in a place called hell. I know this is modern times, but the Bible doesn't change. 
right? And that's what the Word teaches. So these men know their Old Testament. They would have known that him standing there and him seated at the right hand would have meant access is open to God. This is why they're getting so mad. They thought their access to God was through the temple. But Stephen is preaching a sermon. He reminds them that Jesus is standing there as my advocate, and there's no way to the Father except through the Son. Well, that ticks them off. Well, what is it that gets Christians in trouble today? You can be a God person all day long and maybe even get a pat on your back. You might even become the President of the United States. But if you start talking about Jesus, Katie, bar the door. Right? Especially if you start talking about the fact that Jesus is the only way to the Father, to the only God that exists, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You get in trouble for that kind of thing. But the access that Stephen enjoyed was so much better than that old temple. Well, you couldn't really get any access, right? And Stephen was preaching that. So in the midst of the angry men, desire to kill him, Stephen sees heaven open. He sees his covenant defender standing at his place. Folks, just think about that. The Son of God, the Lamb of God, standing in your defense. And then the Bible says his accusers rushed him. Loud voice, mob violence, much like what we saw in Charleston, Virginia, right? Mob violence. Well, Stephen's vision, in effect, validates Jesus' claim, right? But it also condemns the council for rejecting Jesus. Because unless they're willing to repent of their wrongs and trust Jesus, then they're going to die in their sin. And so they don't have any other choice. Pride wins the day right here, right? We talked about that, didn't we? Just the unbelievable nature of unbelief. I mean, the, the man was healed right there in Acts chapter 3. They saw him 20-something years begging for money. Jesus says, the, the guys, in the name of Christ, says, get up and walk. They know him. They saw it. Unmistakable, undeniable, yet they still walked in unbelief. They want to drown out the words, so they scream real loud, and like kids, they stop up their ears. Your kids ever done that? Oh, la, 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 la. Right? Just whether they put their fingers in there or not, they don't listen to us. Right? I didn't hear any amens. Have you raised kids? Right? But they're, they're running around like children. But yet here is Stephen with peace and joy and fullness of the Spirit in the sight of Jesus Christ. And here are these grown men sticking their fingers in their ears and running around screaming like children. Extreme bedlam. Right? what you see going on. Chaotic situation. They rush upon him. They drag him out of the city. And I'm sure the crowds all joined in this frantic situation, much like it was when they were crying, crucify Jesus. Much like that situation. Now, there were rules for stoning. Uh, the, the, as a matter of fact, the Bible teaches us in Deuteronomy that the witnesses must, first, must throw the first stone. But the continuous action of the, of the Greek language indicates that they were in the process of throwing the rocks before he ever gets out of the city. They're in the process of stoning him. Now, I don't know if you ever thought about dying from getting hit with rocks, being pounded in your body. Have you ever stopped to consider how gory and vicious this is? Consider what it's like to have rocks hurled at you. You could only wish as they're throwing those rocks, that the first one would hit you in the temple of your head so you wouldn't have to suffer anymore. Just think about this. 
All because of the fact that he preached Jesus to them. The Bible says that there's one standing by, young man. Translation of the Greek is someone 24 to 40. Most scholars believe he's around 30 years of age. And who we're speaking of? Right? And like a picture, pitcher, who would take off his jacket while he's keeping his arms warm, he takes off his jacket so he can throw freer, that person who is approving of the execution being Saul is holding all of their cloaks as they rear back unhindered and chunk those stones at God's servant. Gosh, it's just a hard thing to think about, isn't it? Just to think about stones being hurled at anybody. Needless to say, in this situation, choice servant of God. Graced beyond measure. The Bible says that about this man. Full of grace. And he's looking headlong at Jesus. That makes all the difference, doesn't it? And they're hurling those stones at him. What a scene. This event would imprint into Paul's heart and mind for the rest of his life. Acts 22. Listen to the word. Verse 19. Can't see my scriptures. Acts 22. Verse 19. And I said, Lord... They themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. Verse 20. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by, what? Approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you to the Gentiles. Just think about this. This never fully left Paul's mind. There's a reason why he said that the grace of God could save the worst of sinners, which I am chief. Right? There's a reason why Paul would refer over and over again to the fact that I persecuted the church of God. Uh, I'm the chief of sinners because he knew the magnitude of what he did To the church of the living God. He gave his approval. Stephen prays as he's being stoned. Note this. And he says, Lord, which is the equivalent of Yahweh in the Old Testament. He uses the term kurios. Folks, that is the covenant-keeping God of the Old Testament. So he calls Jesus God. Anybody want to write that in a media script? Because some people say Jesus never claimed to be God. They didn't read the right Bible. They didn't read the scriptures of the New Testament. If you've seen the Father, you've seen me. Right? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Right? So, Stephen is acknowledging that Jesus Christ is God. Kyrios, Lord, is Yahweh God of the Old Testament. Okay? And then he calls him Asus, Jesus, Savior. So don't miss this. He says, Yahweh received my spirit. Luke 23, 46, we have recorded the last words of Christ. And he says, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. So Jesus said that. And Jesus' first witness as a martyr in the early church said the same thing. Wow. His second prayer was modeled after Christ as well. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they are doing. We know that God forgave Paul. So this was an effective prayer, was it not? 
It wasn't ineffectual. Uh, Then the Bible says he fell asleep. Now, folks, what a tender way to end such a brutal scene. Well, this is not by accident. Luke is a physician, but he's also empowered by the Holy Spirit to write what he's writing, right? It's an inspired word. He says he fell asleep. What a beautiful word for such a brutal death. Jesus, my friends, forever transformed death for his followers. And it doesn't matter your mode of death if you're a believer. In the eyes of God, you're falling asleep. And you're waking up in glory. I love that in Acts 13 where it says that when it's about David testifying of Christ, he's going to say, and David served his own generation, but by the will of the Lord, he went to sleep. Don't you want to die that way? In the will of the Lord, you just go to sleep. Serve your generation, make an impact on it, and go to sleep. Well, that's not the end of the story, of course. He uh, falls asleep in this life, but he awakes in glory. Same thing is true for us. Our bodies fall asleep in this life, but we awake to glory. Uh, To be absent from the body, which God's got a plan for your body too. That's another sermon. But if you die, your body is left, but you go immediately to be in the presence of the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So Stephen suffered and died like Christ, but he was also guaranteed resurrection. That's coming in the future, right? And folks... If he guarantees it, it's going to happen. He guarantees it, it's going to happen. I think we ought to greet every morning that we wake up with a future look to our own resurrection. That dawning is going to come sooner than we think. We ought to live with an eternal perspective that one of these days, this old, as the older you get, I'm sure, you will testify the fact that I look forward to that new body. I'm thankful that God heard this prayer. There are, there's at least one that God doesn't hold this sin against him, and that was Saul. Aren't you thankful? We have no idea how many came to know Jesus because of Stephen's death. There could have been, very, there could have been many recipients of saving grace based on Stephen's prayer. Now, let's wrap this up. Here's one thing I want to say to you. God is sovereign over persecution. Nothing happens by happenstance. One thing you see all the way through Acts is that God is sovereign over persecution. Here's something else you see. God can save the most rotten sinner that ever lived. If he can save Paul, save Saul and make him Paul, he can save any ayatollah in any cave anywhere in the world, no matter who it is. See, the problem in our world is not, it's, this is not a race issue. This is a heart issue. We all got, Martin Luther King Jr. got that right. He preached the total depravity of man. That's the basis of our problems, folks. And only Jesus can change that. Only Jesus Christ. It's kind of like that old short story written by Nathaniel Hawthorne called Earth's Holocaust. And the people are, it's pictured this giant bonfire and people are throwing in all the things that they think are keeping the society evils there. They throw in guns and hand grenades and books uh, Everything they think that's causing the society to be evil. But one man stands up while that's happening and says, there's yet one thing that remains to be thrown into the fire. And unless it's thrown into the fire, nothing will ever change. You know what it is? The human heart. Boy, isn't that the truth? If it's not a heart change, folks, there's no change at all. But again, conclusion. Please remember, God is sovereign over persecution. But God can save the worst of sinners. And some of you are here this morning, you think, I can't be saved. 
Well, you're the exact product that can be saved. Right? You know, I hear people all the time say, well, y'all just use Christianity as a crutch. You're exactly right. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Amen? That's what you want to say to the world. Apart from him, you can do nothing. Yeah, it's a crutch, and I like him. I like him a lot. He's my Lord and Savior. He's much more than a crutch, though. He's reality every single day. So here's something else we learned. God will always have a remnant. If you've ever read through Romans 11, although the, the Israel as a nation rejects Jesus, which is going to be what causes the gospel to go to the ends of the earth, right? God is sovereign over persecution. Were it not for this, you wouldn't be here today. If the gospel didn't push out of Jerusalem, you would not be here today. Where's the gospel going to go? To some half-breeds that Jews hated, the Samaritans. Philip's going to go on down through there preaching the word of Christ. And Ethiopian unit's going to be saved. God be the glory. And then it's multiplication through Acts. And God is taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. But I want you to, I want to remind you of something. Stephen's, uh, he, he preaches doom and judgment to them, but God will have a remnant. Even out of his own chosen people nationally, God will always have a remnant. Read Romans chapter 11. Here's something else we learn. John 12, 24 says, Unless a seed falls to the ground and it shall not bear. But if it falls to the ground and dies, it will bear much fruit. Thank God for the fruit that is born out of Stephen's death. Think about the missionary emphasis across the world because of this. The gospel is going to explode. Same thing was said of those who gave their lives. Jim Elliott, St. James, uh, those guys that gave their lives for those five, uh, ministering to the Aka Indian tribe, people said, don't go there. Uh, they're savage warriors. They're going to kill you. They went anyway, and we know that they were martyrs for the cause of Christ. The world said, don't go. God says, go. It's amazing what God has done through the life of Jim Elliott. There are, mission, there, are people on the, there are people in foreign countries today because of Jim Elliott saying he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Mm, what a statement. God may not call you to be a martyr. For most of us, he won't. But he does call you to be a living sacrifice. Romans 12, 1 and 2, I urge you, therefore, brothers, in view of God's mercy that changed your life, present your body a holy and acceptable and pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service. Verse 2, don't be conformed. Don't let the world transform you into its mold, right? But be renewed through your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. God may call you. We ought to all be ready to die for Him. But in our world today, I'm just asking you to live for it, right? Uh, be a living sacrifice today for Him. Jim Elliott said this, wrote this in his journal just days before his death. He said, I seek not a long life, but a full one, like you, Lord Jesus. Two years later, he wrote, oh, that was early on. Two years later, he, two years later, he wrote, I must not think it strange if God takes in youth those whom I would have kept on earth till they were older. And he says this, God is peopling eternity, and I must not restrict him to old and old men and women. Isn't that amazing? Like Stephen, Jim Elliott and his four comrades went to be with Jesus on January 8th, 1956. To the world, they were slain. To Jesus Christ, he was peopling heaven. Right? To him, it was glory. 
It was through the suffering and death of His servants throughout time where the gospel has spread to nations. So folks, don't think it's strange when we suffer for Christ. He said it's going to happen. We don't need to think that's strange. And look, we sit comfortably in our lazy boys in the United States of America. But that's not true for 95% of the Christians in the world. Because there are fewer Christians in the U.S. now than there's ever been. There are more Christians, we know that, in foreign countries than we have in our own country. So we, think, we need to think about this. Stephen was the first martyr for Christ. What a model courage, conviction. What a reminder that it's through the Word that people are saved. Right? We don't have to come up with a new marketing strategy or or a new leadership style. We need to preach the Word. Do we need to hone those things? Sure. But those things can't save a soul. Only the Word saves a soul. Changes a life. What an incredible model. Uh, I want to remind you of how Revelation 2.10 sums it up. Remain faithful even when facing death that I will give you the crown of life. Wow, what a verse. In uh, hymn number 465 in your Baptist hymnal, there's a song called Only Trust Him. It was written by John Stockton. Listen to the words. Come every soul by sin oppressed, there's mercy with the Lord. And He will surely give you rest by trusting in His word. Are you at, unre- are you, unre- are you at unrest this morning spiritually? Only Jesus can give you rest. That's what he was preaching. Second verse, For Jesus shed his precious blood, rich blessings to bestow, plunged now into the crimson flood that washes white as snow. What a hymn. Verse 3 and 4 I love. They're my favorites. Verse 3, Yes, Jesus is the truth, the way, sounds like Stephen's sermon, right? That leads you into rest. Believe in him without delay, and you'll be fully blessed. And listen to the glory verse. Come then and join this holy band, and on to glory go, to dwell in that celestial land where joys immortal flow. Only trust Him, only trust Him. Sing it. Only trust Him now. He will save you. He will save you. He will save you now. That's my plea to you. Only trust Him. And for believers, oh, we need to listen to Stephen's sermon. We need to listen to his application. We need to think about what we're doing for Christ. If nothing else, leave out of here saying, God, help me be a living sacrifice. Help me to be a living sacrifice wherever you've plugged me in. It's your job, at the school, uh, whatever you do. God, help me be a living sacrifice. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you. We want to thank you for how you change lives. God, I want to thank you for Stephen. Lord, he's still this day basking in your glory. God, what an attestation to your glory when he starts his sermon talking about you coming down in your glory, and he sees your glory, and he experiences your glory in fullness. God, that's amazing. We all look forward to that. Lord, we've had church members who lost loved ones this week with Ron and Mr. Don and losing loved ones. But Lord, because they were in you, they awakened into glory. See Jesus face to face. God, what a blessing it is that if we were to die as martyrs for the faith, 
Just like Stephen, we will open our eyes to behold your glory. We can only pray that you're standing to receive us. You are our advocate, so in that sense, you are standing. God, thank you for that. Thank you so much, Lord Jesus, for grace and mercy. Lord, would you impress upon the person who thinks they're the vilest of sinners, that if you can save Saul, you can save them. May they turn to you, Lord, before it is everlastingly too late. May you draw them to yourself with silver cords of grace. Pour it on them, Lord Jesus, so that they see clearly who you are. And may they be convicted not with rage, but convicting power of the Spirit of God where they bow their heart and life to you. God, would you do this? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.